Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. And welcome to a brand new season of the Afternoon Special Podcast. I hope you guys miss me, because I sure did miss you. I know it was only like a month or two ago since we wrapped up the last season, but it feels like it's been a lifetime. So I'm very glad to be back and to be talking about pop culture nonsense um you know past and present i can't really remember what number season we're on of the show but i can confirm that i am happy you're here even if it's your first time being here i'm still happy you're here so it also happens to be spooky season which you guys know i love spooky season and for this week's episode what better way than to kick off this momentous season by talking about the scariest place that I know, which is film Twitter. Now, truly, there's so much to talk about from that God-fearing corner of the internet, but this week, I am potentially burning myself at the stake and attempting to tackle the core of the discourse that pops up every five to seven business weeks from Martin Scorsese's comments on franchise films, with the most famous example being his 2019 comments about Marvel movies not being real cinema. Now, before y'all jump me, put the pitchforks down. I'm in no way, shape, or form seeking to degrade, undermine, or condescend the works, legacy, and or personhood of one Martin Scorsese. I I have to say that because I did talk about this on Twitter. Um, I'm not calling it X. I'm not I'm not doing it. Okay, I'm not calling it X. But I talked about this on Twitter when it popped up, and someone was like, "How dare you condescend to the Martin Scorsese?" And it was the a la like Megan the Stallion or Kermit the Frog to ease. Um, And so I just, I want to make it crystal clear that this is not me, you know, holding Martin Scorsese and being like holding a camera and microphone in front of his face and being like, you're wrong, actually. I would never do that uh, because simply, I don't think that I I could. Um, He's Martin Scorsese. (laughs) Like it's, I'm not going to do that. That's not the vibe here. So what this episode really is, more than me saying whether he's right or wrong because I don't think that he's wrong um 
my remarks on Twitter were kind of just like that. We we get it. Um, <laughs> we we understand it. We've had this conversation multiple multiple times since 2019. So like we get it, Marty. But you know, I'm not saying that he's wrong because he's not. Uh, but I'm more so wanting to provide context for what he's saying and speaking more broadly about, you know, how franchises have worked in Hollywood um, and really kind of picking apart this discourse and really getting to the meat and potatoes of it. Um, because I think oftentimes with discourse like this, we kind of just get wrapped up in, you know, sound bites and everything. And then we don't really get to the, the, the meat and potatoes of what it is whoever is has been you know taken from the headlines whatever it is that they're talking about so i want to get to the meat and potatoes of what it is that he's talking about and to provide some context for what he's saying because it is not just within the snapshot of you know marvel movies and franchise movies now but this is almost a hundred year long uh kind of stent of movies and franchises and you know popular genres and everything like that so we're going to be we're going to dive into it in that way um so enough chat enough preamble if all of that sounds good to you let's get started so scorsese and many other filmmakers um kind of in and around his you know class of, of filmmakers you know a lot of new Hollywood directors. Um, I know Steven Spielberg has made kind of somewhat similar comments. I think his more of his stuff was about like streamers, but him, Tarantino, a lot of them have been, you know, rightfully critical and sometimes repetitive about the MCU and kind of more broadly the place that franchises have held in Hollywood. Um, and I think what I, the main thing, the thing that calls me to want to talk about this particular subject matter now especially is that we're kind of actively in a little bit of a transitionary period um within the context of film history as far as what is the genre du jour of hollywood and when i say the genre du jour what i mean is like what are the films that are getting made by hollywood more than kind of any other film because sometimes it's very easy, I think, to get wrapped into the context of like Hollywood has only ever wanted to make, you know, superhero movies or Hollywood has only ever wanted to make war movies or, you know, this movie or that movie. And it, I think, is a fun, I think, uh, romp through history to see like what has been the MCU of different decades in Hollywood history and what does that mean more broadly? So I will say that there has always been an MCU adjacent in Hollywood. There's always going to be that genre that Hollywood can bank on and guarantee is going to make money. And really what hinges on these films, like what gets chosen, you know, I don't think people sit in a boardroom and decide, okay, this decade, we're going to pick this genre to be like the creme de la creme, the top of the heap. Like this is what we're, we're choosing to be our thing for the next decade or so. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it has to do a lot with the advancement of technology more than really anything else. And as we go through the list, you'll kind of see what are some of the genres that have, you know, risen to the top, how they tend to coincide with the advent of a certain piece of, of technology. 
Uh, but I think also societal factors play a big role in it. Um, a lot of these films are not made void of social commentary in context. So obviously with a genre like horror, there's a lot of social commentary baked into that. And there are decades that were very rich in social commentary that bred a lot of really popular you know, horror movies or a lot of like wartime movies or what we're seeing now, which is kind of this like uptick in um, biopics and a lot of films that are, you know, seeking to tell the true story about, you know, a certain figure from history, whatever. But it, it's always been that that's there's always been something. So starting out kind of at the turn of the the talkies we start to get you know sync sound and so that introduces music into the fold and everything like that but we also start to get you know a lot of like crime films for the first time and i think there's again there's a spectacle aspect to it um one of the main things that i really want to harp on within the grand you know narrative that we're talking about here is that Whatever is the franchise, whatever is the MCU of of this time, one word that you can really tie it to is spectacle. The idea of a grand theatrical experience. No matter what the subject matter is, spectacle is always at the core of it. And that's what I mean when I say that uh, technology has kind of like met wherever the genre is because those technological advancements lead the way for spectacle. So, you know, pre-1940, we were getting like gangster films for the first time. The idea and the the scope of technology is beginning to broaden, like I said, with sync sound. Um, of course, with sync sound, we get music and we get musicals, but musicals don't really movie musicals as we understand them don't really tend to pop up until around like the 50s but the 40s we get dramas and like really kind of steeped dramas like film noirs around in and around this time within like you know 10 to 20 years around this time we're getting like double indemnity shadow of a doubt we're getting these really really like gripping dramas um and mystery films and noirs and I, then i think where we start to see the most direct kind of one-to-one -one when it comes to where superhero films are currently uh is the rise of the western so the western rolls around into the 1950s and hollywood is churning out these westerns left and right and when you think about what i was saying as far as scope and you know spectacle that is the western the western takes place and has you know drama has intrigue it has action sometimes it has romance like it's got the these larger than life figures that an audience can sit and be enthralled by for you know 90 minutes or whatever it was and leave the theater you know wanting to to be like that figure that they they just saw up on the big screen you know like it all kind of ladders back to that spectacle aspect westerns at the time were were made to feel big because they took place on these frontiers and they were shot in these really like fun and interesting way they didn't feel uh so fixed and i think that's what lended to its popularity and one thing about hollywood they're they're there to you know entertain and make you laugh and make you cry and make you think and you know make you sit on the edge of your seat uh you know shout out to carl lamley but like hollywood is also there to make money 
they're there to make money. They are there to make a profit. And when we get these, these genres that are very popular, they see whatever audiences are, you know, responding to and they're like, oh, okay, like, we're going to take Westerns and we're going to churn out so many Westerns. <laughs> we are going to make so many Westerns because that is guaranteed to make a lot of money and make a lot of money. They did. They made so much money, you know, and it's very interesting to think about as we're moving through history to think about these different genres and how they kind of like functioned as blockbusters before blockbusters were blockbusters and we'll get to blockbusters we'll get there but I think some of where I get a bit confused when I hear some critiques from some of these directors not saying Scorsese specifically um but from some directors when they you know express uh a disdain for for franchise and everything I'm like but there are so many there's precedence for for franchise in in Hollywood it's almost you know was born when Hollywood was born, like there is always going to be that one genre that was turned over and over and over and over again, because Hollywood can guarantee that it would make money. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, that's a, a tale for another day. Um, and in tandem with Westerns, we also saw the rise of the movie musical. So we get movie musicals like Hello, Dolly, uh, Singing in the Rain, again, Spectacle. These are huge like bombastic pieces that feel so like fantastical I remember I watched um Singing in the Rain for the first time this year and I I don't know how I hadn't seen it before it's it's one of those films to me that you you kind of you've seen it if you're like a a a student of of history especially Hollywood history feels like something you've seen without ever having had to have seen it because it's so impactful um but having sat down and watched it you know for myself I really enjoyed it it was a fantastic fantastic film uh not only just the music and dancing you know it's, it's Gene Kelly like come on but the scene towards the end where it's like it's like kind of like a dream sequence um I can't remember the the song but it's like these very you know artificially authentic fake looking set pieces but there's just this like opulence to it it feels so big and I can only imagine going to the theater and sitting down and just being enthralled you're looking at it on the 30 foot you know projector screen and it's just like it immediately enraptures you and I think that's the main thing like audiences want to be enthralled and be enraptured and to feel taken on a journey no matter what that journey is um and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later because i think sometimes some of this this talk does hinge on degrading the audience and you know saying that they don't really know what they want and they don't really know you know the full scope of what cinema is and everything but i think it's easy to get wrapped up in that bubble you know uh and forget that most regular people um go to the movie theater to escape and not every movie is built with escapism in in mind um but these films are and that's why they do so well and that's why hollywood hinges on them and then when that genre starts to you know fall out of vogue you bring in the next crop of you know hits and you do it all over again rinse and repeat and so 
you know, as we're, we're moving along, you know, movie musicals, again, don't really ever fall completely out of vogue. I think they become like with a, every other genre, I think it just becomes like, OK, this is one aspect of it, of, you know, the Hollywood kind of pie as far as like what tends to get made. But movie musicals always consistently tend to do pretty well if they're well made. You know, as time goes on, you get, you know, Grease and you get... Why am I blanking on literally every movie musical right now? <laughs> but you get like Grease and Grease 2 and that breeds so many more things. And then you start to get like, you know, musicals for kids. So you get High School Musical and Cheetah Girls and all these different things. And movie musicals, I think, just become like a fixture of Hollywood because people love song and dance. You know, like people just they just love it. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, the 60s is a really interesting period because we start to see again, this introduction of of technology really starting to kind of push the boundary. So you get these big advancements from Dolby um, as far as sound goes. So that only kind of beefs up what you can do and it can only make certain things that might have been just okay before even better. So like Again, movie musicals sound even better. Car chase scenes sound more excite exciting. Like, you know, everything feels bigger. That's the point. Everything, everything starts to feel bigger. The 70s is, is an interesting period, especially in the context of talking about, you know, Scorsese and Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas and, you know, all these other, the these directors who were considered like, you know, New Hollywood, who these directors who were, you know, kind of a changing of the guard almost when it came to how filmmaking was was being approached in Hollywood. The 70s brings about this really kind of, you know, grungy to a certain extent uh, feel in, in filmmaking. There definitely feels like there's this, the, a bubble has been burst in Hollywood, right? And there is now time for a new crop of young talent to come up and to make their films and they can kind of chart their own path. And the bubble that really that popped around this time is the studio system and the star system. I mean, the studio system is, you know, having kind of this vertical integration, almost everything done within one studio and, you know, mass monopoly that happens from studio to studio. We're kind of seeing that now. Um, but once the Paramount Accords were signed, they kind of, you know, it pops like this, this bubble pops and Hollywood begins to feel a lot more free. There's a lot more fluidity that can happen. And all of these studios for the first time can't hinge upon, you know, locking down their talent into these really kind of insidious contracts anymore. They really have to come out the gate with something exciting. And so what's more exciting than a disaster film? <laughs> You know, what's more exciting than a, a a blockbuster? And so that's when in the 70s we get, again, hinging on previous generations, you know, where we get gangster films and dramas that, you know, were exciting, but can only be heightened now as technology has advanced. So you get films like The Godfather, of course, um, you still you're leaning on that, that grungy, that new feeling and that um, very... I don't know. Grungy is the only way I can describe describe it. Kind of feels a bit dirty and raw and real, like hyper realistic. I think film around this time really began to lean out of 
feeling the need to have this kind of space between the audience and the film itself and more so was really interested with getting the audience up close and personal with whatever narrative that you're telling and so you get films like taxi driver um but then on the other side of hollywood you get this really big swing with having you know taking an audience on this journey and having this really fantastical element so you get things like star wars but then you get the advent of the blockbuster with jaws steven spielberg's jaws which opens up the door i think for where a lot of this discourse tends to start uh with the blockbuster the blockbuster is you know and i think as soon as it was invented i think it was starting to get allegations of blockbusters are ruining hollywood and like i said blockbusters to a certain extent whether we've called it that or not have always existed it's whatever genre is the thing for the decade you could consider that to be you know a blockbuster but blockbusters have a little bit more nuance than just what is popular even though what is popular is a pretty big core tenet of what of what blockbusters are but really you get this like you know this this shift that's happening um and you're starting to see hollywood kind of bend and mold into this thing that feels a little bit more familiar to us now um with the presence of 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 blockbusters and with the presence of these big you know like sci-fi epics uh that we then see carried into the 80s um of course you start to see a resurgence of action pieces coming back and with the blockbuster and again as technology tends to advance so you know color film becomes even better and sound becomes even better and the idea of a movie being this massive thing this with all of the scale and scope and again spectacle really becomes its own entity it's films made for the sole purpose of spectacle um which is you know it could be a possible critique of the blockbuster where, you know, you have these films that are being made and, you know, some, if it's not done with a filmmaker that's especially uh, fluent in good storytelling, it could just feel like a succession of large action pieces with no story, uh, which is sometimes a lot of what can happen with a blockbuster. And I think is something that has been a critique of, of superhero films as a part of the blockbuster sector of a film but you start to get these really really big movies in the 80s so you get the sci-fi films you know you get your back to the futures you get your top guns you get your diehards you get all of these really really big movies um you know lethal weapon predator like all of these things that feel like a happening it feels like they are cultural moments that are being created every time the audience goes to to the movie it starts to feel like you know the movies aren't a once every you know couple months thing it starts to feel like you know once a month once every two months you're going to the movies you're hinging your life around film and the cinema going there and having this experience with a bunch of other people this kind of you know the whole idea of like collective effervescence which people talk about which is kind of the phenomenon where you go to it's you, 
it's observed in religion, but it's like when you go to a concert and you're having this communal experience with other people and you're like, oh my God, like this is amazing. Like I'm at the Renaissance tour and like I, this is, this feels like a spiritual experience. Like that is collective effervescence. And within film, I think the concept is called like collective spectatorship where you're going to one place and you're all looking at the same thing and usually responding in the same way and kind of all sharing this communal experience with people that you don't know. Um, That starts to really take shape around this time and movies become events and they, you know, have these big budgets that are put behind them to make them feel big. Marketing feels bigger than life, more so than it ever has. And movies become happenings in a lot of ways and the 90s you know are similar to the 70s because there's again this feeling of a changing from the old guard to the new guard and 20 years in hollywood is a lot and not a lot of time at all um so a lot of things have happened between the 70s and the 90s to cause this new generation of filmmakers to come to the forefront so around this time you're getting you know, you're getting your Robert Rodriguez's, you're getting your Tarantino's, you know, you're getting these, these, you know, filmmakers who are making this, this media, uh, these independent films, and they're, you know, in the case of Robert Rodriguez, financing it themselves. Um, And you're seeing what people can do on such a small budget, which is so different from the blockbusters that we've gotten from the last 20 years, which are kind of hinged on how much money they they spend to make them and I think audiences really began to you know not in large part because there's always a piece of of indies that will be small because if you have less money to make the film you also have less money to market it so you don't have the opportunity to get it in front of a bunch of people's eyeballs and on a larger level studios you know aren't so willing all the time to take a risk on something that's not been tested, uh, whether it be genre wise, whether it be story wise, you know, actor wise, whatever it is, studios are always going to go with what's comfortable and what they know will make them money and taking risks on, you know, stories and, you know, indies as a whole is a massive problem that so many indie filmmakers have, have had to face for so long. Um, because again, if you don't have that studio support, sometimes it's hard to just get your your film in, in front of people's eyeballs, which is, I think, a big thing that Scorsese has mentioned on a couple of occasions. You know, like almost every film, really every film should be given the opportunity to be seen on a big screen to an audience. It should be given the opportunity to be put in front of people and let the people decide whether they like it or not. You know, like a, I think in, in recent years, especially in a, in a necessary, very necessary piece of the whole shebang when it comes to, you know, who gets screens and who doesn't in movie theaters is that movie theaters have taken a huge, massive hit for longer. A lot of people want to hinge it starting at the start of the pandemic, but the exhibition arm of the filmmaking industry have been taking a hit for the last 10 years or so because there were more things entering the fold of people being able to watch films from home and watch films just in other ways. And so movie theaters were closing their doors and movie theaters were having a difficult time keeping doors open. And unfortunately, again, big films like superhero films, you know, like 
your your massive, you know, disaster movies that you get around this time. Like a lot of those things are guaranteed butts and seats and guaranteed money to keep the doors open. And that's not the right way to do it, but it is what has currently kind of been happening with a lot of these these theaters over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Like it's just been difficult to get people to the theater because tickets have gone up, ticket prices have gone up, life has changed, wages have not gone up by all that much, but the cost of living only has gone up. And it, the idea of movies being, you know, these kind of more regular happenings that they were in like the 80s and 90s aren't common occurrences like they once were. And, and of course, as we're going into the 2000s and the 2010s and now the 2020s, superheroes are the genre du jour. Like that is the genre that is, you know, guaranteed to make a lot of money. And a lot of people, I think, may ask themselves, like, where do superhero movies like where does this massive amount of popularity come from because when you think about it superhero films shouldn't be as successful as <laughs> as they are and in the beginning they weren't really number one because they weren't super duper well made and number two because for so long superhero media via you know comic books or via superhero like tv shows and i talked a lot about superhero tv shows um a couple months back when i was talking about saturday morning cartoons but this kind of idea of nerd media was still pretty fringe for so many years um the idea of everyone being a comic book fan really is only an advent of the last probably 20 years starting in the early 2000s and kind of you know ramping up in, into the 2010s um there was it was this idea in hollywood that like oh superhero movies are not gonna make a ton of money because you know like not everyone's a superhero fan not to say that we didn't get superhero films pre-2000s because of course we got you know batman and we've gotten super like superman films and those films did well but as far as like taking the risk of establishing a whole cinematic universe that was not something that probably would have been done in the early 2000s or in the 90s or in the 80s like it would have just been like Ugh. i mean we can see what happens but we don't superheroes don't automatically mean a ton of money filmmaking wise um and you also have to consider the context of like a major brand like marvel in the 90s is, was not what it was now at all it was on the brink of financial collapse pretty much like it was so vastly different um than what it is now and so obviously superhero films weren't going to be doing too well but it wasn't until you know you start to get towards the 2010s that you're like okay these movies are starting to make a lot of money like nerd culture um especially with the the rise of social media becomes popular culture in a lot of ways and before that it really wasn't that Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com So I just wanted to to lay that that foundation for where these franchises are coming from and to really, you know, I think it's easy to browbeat on superhero films and Marvel films and everything. And I think what, what bothers me about the discourse and we're getting into the the actual meat and potatoes of what Scorsese has said and kind of the discourse that it breeds online, especially what bothers me <laughs> is that these conversations never really go beyond from either side, uh, Marvel movie bad. And then to the opposing side, they show a screenshot from amongst the best superhero films. And they're like, Oh, these movies don't deserve to exist. And these conversations never really get anywhere. Like there should be a conversation about how at one point in time, you know, there was kind of the saturation of the market with superhero films. But then there also needs to be this kind of remembering in the context that 20 years ago was just a different genre that was saturating the market. Like, again, going back to the whole idea of Hollywood is going to kind of hinge their bet on what is going to make money at the end of the day. And I think now the importance of of the I think uh, some of the critique of the discourse that I have is that we're actively seeing, like I said at the top of the episode, we're actively seeing kind of this change in what is the the genre of the decade. I think within the last couple of years, audiences, whether through fatigue or whether through just kind of this, you know, general shift we're starting to see audiences not immediately clamor to a superhero movie just because. Um, obviously, what really made them super duper popular in the beginning was technology was at a place where it wasn't ever before um, to be able to make a realistic superhero film. So, you know, of course, mid 2000s superhero films if you watch them now you're like Ugh, you know you can see the rough edges on them and you're like oh that was that's not great but as you got into like the avengers and you really started to get into the mcu 
the CGI and VFX work that's done makes these characters that were once flat 2D images in a book feel real and realized. And you're like, oh my God, again, spectacle. <laughs> the word of the day for the class is spectacle. That is what this whole thing hinges on. That's the whole kit and caboodle. That's the whole point of what we're doing and why Hollywood is doing what they're doing. But again, I think the discourse is just very flat and never really goes anywhere beyond these two opposing groups that clearly don't have any shared in interest amongst each other. I think superhero film fans are, you know, while there is crossover with, you know, non-superhero film fans, I think this discourse only ever gets as far as people who really like superhero films and people who really don't. And that is, it's not a productive conversation. It never gets to the point of like, you know, what is the harm that has been done within the industry from these superhero films? It never gets to, you know, us discussing kind of the variety of what cinema can be to people. Because I think one one thing that Scorsese said that I took a little bit of, of I was I was a little bit opposed to it, was this idea that, you know, younger generations now don't know what what cinema is because they're consuming films like this and i give a lot of grace because he came up in a time that you know film was was very very different he grew up on these you know these these films that are nothing like ones that are coming out now so i give i give him grace for that and you know he's proven time and time again that he cares about the preservation of film and knows so much about it so i'm not going to be like oh he's doesn't know what he's talking about because he does you know what I mean I'm not gonna say that but I think what I think was devoid of that conversation or void void of that conversation what I think was lacking from that conversation was that as much as you know is as much as we can we can critique and you know argue about the credence of these films if they lack story if they lack perspective if they lack you know having something to say there is always going to be someone a younger person who goes to the theater and they watch a film like spider-man no way home and they watch a film like endgame or they watch a film like black panther and they're like this is what movies can be you know this is this is this is that cinema to them and then what it does more so than them resting on their laurels and being like this is all of what cinema can be it bites them with the bug of now i want to see what the rest of it has to offer now i i want i'm into film i want to know more and i think everyone has had an experience with a film you know no matter the genre no matter like you can ask a thousand film fans and if you ask them the question of what was the movie that got you into to film the movie that you know, gave you that love of of the cinema. It's probably going to be a thousand different answers, varying in genres, varying in medium, varying in time period. You know, like for me, those films, a lot of them were animated. Amongst the first films that I ever saw in my life were, you know, Cinderella and Aladdin. I saw them on VHS. Um, but the movies that got me into to film and made me really interested and curious about it were like E.T. and Back to the Future. Like, I'm a Spielberg girly. The idea of this whimsical, 
and you know like the whole kids on bikes thing like i i love it and that's what that's what you know bit me that was the bug and at one point for like 10 years et was the biggest film in the world you know and i don't think anyone would ever say oh et didn't need to exist because it's not you know real cinema it's not this gritty you know thing but it provided value i think and i think sometimes again we can get kind of wrapped up in the bubble of film and film criticism especially and you know when you know so much more about film, you know all of what's out there and you're like, why don't people, more people see this? But sometimes, and being honest, the vast majority of people are never going to see the, you know, deepest niche, niches, crooks and crevices of film. You know, sometimes their one and only relationship with film might be these blockbusters that they see at the movies and that's what bit, like that's what gets them that's what bites them that's what gets them you know going with their journey of broadening their perspective and then when they get older they can say you know i was a kid and i went to go see spider-man no way home and then from that that encouraged me to want to become a filmmaker and then that, that may be their favorite film for the rest of time but it also may change they may you know be like and that's you know from discovering film that's when i discovered kurosawa and i love his works and that's what you know got me going with exploring international film you never know what's going to be the gateway you truly never know and i think that's my main thing to keep in mind you know not again not to scorsese himself but i think to others broadly with how we talk about this thing is that cinema can be so many things. It doesn't have to look one way. And the point, and where I agree, is that every piece of cinema should be given the opportunity to have that moment to maybe touch someone or get someone or, you know, get the the wheels turning in their head or, like, get their heart racing or, you know, make them laugh so much that it sticks with them and it creates that memory and it creates that love for film that then blossoms into, you know, them becoming a director or screenwriter or even just becoming a bigger film fan and encourages them to want to kind of spread their wings and, and fly when it comes to to the idea of, of exploring film. And as we as we close, because uh, I've been talking for 40 minutes, um, but the last thing that I think and where I want to kind of wrap things up is... Number one, stop asking that man about the MCU. It's very clear that those are not films, number one, that he's made or has an interest in making or likes remotely. He said that he just like he gave it a shot. He just just wasn't his vibe. Stop asking him about about it. I think I think we get it. I think we know his perspective. You know, whether you agree with it or not, you respect it. And it is what it is. Stop asking that man about the mcu we get it because sometimes it just feels like you're propping up this legacy highly respected highly revered director just to dunk on people who like superhero movies and with love and light there are so many easier ways to do that and then vice versa i think it unnecessarily riles up superhero fans in a way that's not necessary and they start being like well what has Scorsese ever done I'm like okay well you're not going to win this argument by going that route I think it, it creates unnecessary tension and drama and sometimes it's just to get a headline that says Martin Scorsese hates Marvel movies which it's like we know he told us that he's not a fan stop asking him he is such a, a deep well of film history and knowledge and has so much more to to talk about and offer 
And I just think that we should maybe be asking him about that stuff, you know? And I think so far on the Killers of the Flower Moon uh, press tour, you know, he's kind of been given the chance to talk about, you know, reflections of his career because he's, he, like many other, you know, of the best known living filmmakers right now, I think are having that that moment where they're just coming to the end of the road of being able to create and being able to make film. And how do you deal with that? How do you contend with that? Um, I, I, I went to TIFF this year and I was able to see uh, what was at the time how Miyazaki's last film, but we know he's such a stunt queen and, <laughs> and was like, actually, I'm not going to retire. That was not my last movie, guys. Uh, but I saw The Boy and the Heron and at the time when we thought it was his last film, I could see that it was this man who has, I think, only known creating for all of his life and knowing when you're at the end of being able to do it, like, what does it do to you? How do you feel about it? How do you make peace with it? Or how do you never make peace with it? Like, what is, what is that internal kind of talk track mean? And I think similar directors, including Scorsese, are, are having those reckonings. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to talk about. Like, that's what I want to, that's the perspective from him that I really want to know because he's he's been able to see so much. Like, I want to give him the floor to talk about those things, you know? And I just think it sometimes can be a bit of a waste to waste, you know, such a great legacy director, you know, just to prop him up to say Marvel movies are bad and then everyone cheers and then no one cares about what he says beyond that. And I don't think that people don't care about what he says beyond that. But I think it's not shocking or not surprising that every time we we tend to hear about him in the headlines, it's because it's something in connection to Marvel movies Again, films that he has expressed are not his thing and films that I don't think he will ever make. So ask him something else. Um, but two, when it comes to these whole like what's the future of film, because I think at one point, I think it was a GQ article where he was kind of talking broadly about his career and he brings up, you know, like the future of film is, you know, Christopher Nolan and the Safdie brothers. I think those are the two people that he or three people that he mentions that we should be kind of, you know, looking to for the future of film. And I definitely think there's some credence there. Nolan has proven time and time and again that, you know, he can get asses in seats and also he can make a good film. Um, the Safties as well. But I think what oftentimes is missing from this conversation more broadly, not from him specifically, because I think he just mentioned whoever was on the top of his head, but when we start to see the outpouring discourse from it is that overwhelmingly who we see as the future of film tends to look one way and has looked one way for so long. And I think now more than ever, there are so many more people who are telling so many more amazing stories and are able and have, have been able to, to do it without, you know, I guess, you know, like, a. I don't know, they've just been able to do it, you know, like, I, I think what oftentimes people who are missing from these conversations are overwhelmingly people of color, overwhelmingly women, overwhelmingly queer people, you know, like, when we talk about the future of film, I don't want to just hear directors that we've had around for a long time who are just, like, a little bit younger than these, you know, 80-year-old legacy directors, you know, like, I want to hear 
about the Daniels being the future of film because they, they are. I want to hear about Jordan Peele being the future of film because he is. You know, I want to hear about Greta Gerwig. I want to hear about Nina DaCosta. I want to hear about, you know, Chloe Zhao. I want to hear about, you know, all of these directors who were coming from these marginalized communities because that's the future of film. I want to hear about directors from different mediums. I want to hear about animation directors being the future of films. Like, I think, you know, Mike Rowe, who has done uh, The Mutuals vs. the Machines and also uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which was really good and I really enjoyed it. Um, that's the future of film to me. You know, these are the people who are on the cutting edge of telling these new stories, telling them from different perspectives, using new technology, using new mediums, pushing the boundaries for what we've always understood film to be. I don't think the future of film is resting on the laurels of what works, you know, of what has been tested. You have to take some some risks, you know, and I think we're moving in that direction, you know, from a very out there and one could consider outlandish uh, best picture winner, like everything everywhere all at once, you know, like that it was a film that I think will always sit with me. And I'll always remember going into the theater and leaving the theater and immediately not knowing what to do with that, with that movie. I've talked about it before, but I remember I had no plans to go and see this movie at all. I was, it not because I was against it. It just wasn't on my radar, but one of my close friends, Nicole, she was just like, come, you know, come to the movies with us. Like, we're going to go see this movie. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And eventually I conceded and I was like, fine, I'll go. And I go and I'm sitting in this movie and I'm taking it in. I'm laughing, you know, I'm getting emotional. I'm thinking like it's giving me so much to chew on. And I'm, when the movie is over, she was kind of like, oh, you know, like, what do you think? And I was like, I, I think I, I liked it. You know, I, I didn't really know what to do with it immediately. And it wasn't until we parted ways and I was on the bus and train going back home to my apartment. And when I was on the bus, I remember I was waiting for the bus. I had to have been waiting for like 20 minutes. And it was the second I got on that bus and was able to kind of just think about what I had taken in. And I just started crying. And I was, it got me in a way that I wasn't anticipating. And I think that is the direction that we're heading in. You know, things that are coming in pretty experimental and kind of weird and crazy boxes, but leaving you with something that will, number one, always be a memory, but number two, will always kind of etch its own place in history. I feel the same way about, you know, Nope. I feel the same way about so many of these other films that have come out in recent years where I'm just, I'm enthralled, number one, by the tenacity of the storytelling, um, but also just the the visuals and everything and just this willingness to embrace the medium and then make it something unique and fun and different. Um, to me, that is the future of a film. No one asked me, but that's the future of film. You know, it's a very, it's a very varied <laughs> like landscape of film and who we see as being the next up needs to reflect that. You know, I don't think it's just the same crop of white guys who have been, you know, making stuff since the beginning that's going to be the future. It's going to be the the medium only gets better and only expands when everyone can can tell their story. And I mean, every genre, every medium, you know, every length of film, every every like 
story, I think, has that that place. And when we talk about these things, when this discourse comes up, that is where we we need to be hinging this on. And we also need to have a trust in the audience finding those stories. If we give them the opportunity, if we we have it in the most ideal world where every film you know, is able to get that that big push, is able to get on a screen. And someone in the middle of, you know, middle of nowhere, middle America can find a film that's not a blockbuster and and be touched by it, I think. And I think they will. Like I said, you know, people go to the movies, especially now with all the things that have happened in the last couple of years. People want to go to the movies and be in a different world for a little bit. That's why superhero movies do well. You know, it's a story of people being saved. You know, there's a a comfort and solace in that. And that's why people go to see a movie like Top Gun Maverick, because it's just, it's just planes. It's just flying and planes and, and great stuff. It's very, you know, accessible story. And sometimes when you're dealing with the everything else of life, if you can just go and escape for 90 minutes in a movie theater with a, a nice bag of popcorn and a blue raspberry icy, sometimes there's nothing better than that. Uh, but trust that the audiences will find a good story because they will. They always will. And I, I desperately want when we have these conversations not to degrade the audience, but to put the pressure on the studios to take more risks. People are only going to take in what's in front of them. So put the pressure on the studios to put more experimental things in front of them. And I promise you, people will respond in in tow. Oh my gosh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod, and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I really need to think about this discourse. Um, First of all, no, you don't. Save yourself. Uh, But second of all, I'm not going to remember all that info. Don't worry. I've put all of that information in the description down below just for you. You're welcome. So I truly do hope you enjoyed this week's episode and this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Galleon on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? 
Well, we dove deep into the Empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.